So in Superior, we kind of have an idea that there's always a question, how big is here? And you can, thankfully with Superior, you can see it with the way that the mountains kind of frame in and create this bowl or enclave of this whole place that you can even feel it when you're driving to or away from Superior. It's almost like there's a morphogenetic field over the place that you like enter into and and exit out of it. Your nervous system can almost track the difference. So when you have this hole in mind that you can see in your mind's eye or, you know, actually going outside and looking, now we we have an idea of like, this is here, this is our place. And then we ask like, well, how does here work? Hi, I'm Benji Ross. And I'm Anna Perpera. And we want to welcome you to Awakening Lands. Where we aim to give land a voice and share stories of humans who are learning to live in ways that nurture and animate life. Here, you'll find unfolding stories of regeneration that are happening all over the planet. And feel the story of humans learning to come home. We will highlight the people working to create the possibility of regenerating whole landscapes. We're calling these people landscape leaders. The easiest way to spot them is by their devotion to their people and place. They are essential to regeneration, and we want to share their stories in order for them to see one another and for us all to see the pathways they've taken. It's in this way we'll also see entire bioregional narratives coming to life. And we're aiming to do more than tell stories. The Earth needs her humans to come together as one, to become more than we've been. Let's co-create the spaces to do so. Let's author the stories that show us how. Are you in? All right. So today we are joined by Chris Casillas. And Chris is the founder of Regenerating Sonora, a superior Arizona-based nonprofit that's nurturing local potential for a resilient and regenerative future. He also helps build leaderful organizations as the co-founder of the Development Dojo and is a board member at the Center for Shamanic Education and Exchange. Chris has a background in tech where he played a key role in helping scale a business from startup to becoming a multi-billion dollar publicly traded company. And me and Benji know Chris through the Design School for Regenerating the Earth, and we really enjoy collaborating with him and talking with him. He's a pretty cool guy, so we're very excited to have him on as our first interview. How are you doing today, Chris? Doing well. Thank you very much for having me. Great. Well, um, and since this is our first episode, we want to start introducing some rituals into how we how we run our interviews. And one of the things that you always do um, when opening up your meetings are uh, gratitude. So sharing what you're grateful for. And I thought that it would be great if we could start out with that. So would you like to share with us what you're grateful for, Chris? Sure. Yeah, thank you. Well, I'm grateful for the Haudenosaunee and the the people who have transferred and transmitted uh, rituals and practices from that uh, lineage over to me to even know to do this gratitude practice. I'm grateful for the moon. I'm grateful for this house that I live in, for my wife and my son and my dog, Appa, and I'm grateful for good coffee. And I'll kick it over to Benji. Right on. Thank you, Chris. Uh, yeah, I'm grateful for coffee too. Um, I'm also grateful for this, this pitter pattering of rain that's coming down on the yurt right now. I don't know if you guys can hear it, um, but uh, it's being canceled out. The rain is coming. Um, so it's a blessing. It's been very dry here in Pamunya for a while. 
And uh, I got the opportunity to think about this question ahead of time. And I'm just, I'm so grateful whenever people who really care about the planet and about communities come together to, to learn together. That's something that just fills me with gratitude. So thank you both. Anna, over to you. Yeah, and I'm uh, I'm grateful for my family. I'm grateful for my friends that uh, live so close to me. And speaking of the Haudenosaunee, I live on their their land right now uh, in the Great Lakes in the Erie Niagara watershed. So I'm very also very grateful for the abundance of water that's by me. Um, and I'm really grateful to have the opportunity to be here with you guys and and have this this great conversation. Awesome. All right. Well, let's jump into some questions. Um, the first one, uh, Chris, your family has a long history uh, in Superior, Arizona. Uh, and I think that's one of the things that makes you special. Uh, if I could use that word in our network of landscape leaders. Uh, so many of us um, are like first generation, are moving around, trying to find our place. You have this multi-generational connection to Superior. And it's it's kind of interesting I, when you think about some of the challenges that we face as a species in understanding degradation of, of ecosystems. One of the things that comes up is, is the idea of shifting baselines. The fact that a lot of the degradation happens over long periods of time. And with you know one human lifetime, we, we miss a lot of that. We have a shifting understanding of what healthy is. Uh, and you were raised in a time and place when the Queen Creek that runs through Superior was already dried up. And I'm wondering, I've heard a few in the past, if you have some stories that you can share that paint the picture of what the creek once was and then what it means maybe for the community today, both past and present. Mm, yeah, well, the Queen Creek is known in some circles as Arizona's forgotten river. And so even though it's a, a like we call it a creek, it really is like a river that's carved its way through uh, this canyon. It's just so beautiful to drive by. And the headwaters is on the other side of the highway from Oak Flats, which is a uh, contested area uh, due to mining activity and the sacred land that uh, it's been for generations with the Apache now being the, the stewards of that land today. And so that, uh, that river, which is probably more appropriately called, it used to drain into the Gila. And if you look at a map now, it's really hard to see that that ever happened, you know, because you, you see how it meanders and how it dries up and, um, and how it's been dry for so long. Due to mining activity back in the 1900s is really when it began. Um, it caused some fissures in the, uh, in the creek bed. And as a result, water just, instead of going and flowing, it just starts to get lost down on those fissures. And so even though um, that was the case in the 1900s, still there was enough happening and enough water still for there to be a flow. And so like my mom used to live right by where the, uh, where the fissures stopped. Uh, she lived right on the other side. I mean, she could just walk to the creek from her backyard. It was almost connected to it. And so she tells these stories of how it was almost as if the creek was like a, another parent for her. And it, it, some of these stories, honestly, like it, are so deeply personal that I don't even feel super 
comfortable sharing them in a public domain if you if you know what i mean like my my tia chila um she talks about the the spiritual connection she has in a certain spot that she would go to and just sit and just have these experiences that were so deeply personal so yeah that shifting baseline idea really is is worth bringing up because kids today look over at the creek or when when i was growing up look at the creek and you'd see some water sometimes, but now like kids today, it's like you almost never see any water there. And you think that's just how it's always been. I'll even just um, push it further and say that there used to be on the other side. So, you know, where, where Leo's is at on Pinnell Avenue on the other side behind uh, some of the rows of houses, there used to be this body of water called La Laguna. And when people talk about La Laguna who are in their seventies, They'll say, oh, man, yeah, that was all dirty water. It was all polluted. You didn't want to go in there. And there's all these funny stories about uh, kids getting in trouble from their parents because they were in the water. And you could tell because it was all all, all kinds of mind pollution and um, you could see it on their clothes. Right. But um, that's a, if you ask kids today, uh, where's La Laguna? They'll have no idea because it's completely dried up. It was ne- didn't even exist as a body of water when I was a kid. You never even saw it. But then if you talk to someone like my Tata, who's uh, 97 years old, he says, La Laguna, oh, it used to be real clear water. We used to go fishing in there. He told me about a time that one time he was like fishing in La Laguna and he caught a turtle on accident. And you just think like how far away we are from turtles being in La Laguna. Now it's like, it's just a dried up piece of land off to the side over there now, right? So yeah, that shifting baseline is, it's its really relevant here. Yeah, thanks, Chris. And so speaking about your, your family lineage within Superior, not only are do you have a strong connection there, but you also have a family lineage within community organizing and community leaders. I'm interested in how they may have impacted your career trajectory. Can you share a bit about how you became so passionate in your love and care for your place? Mm. Yeah, well, that really comes from my elders leading by example, starting with my grandparents. So my grandparents have always been involved in the community, even my great grandparents, um, which I was old. I guess I was um, around to be able to see them and, and see how they move around the the landscape and how they are with other people. My great, great grandparents are from Superior uh, well, I should say they moved to Superior, so we've been here for over a hundred years, and especially my my grandfather, my my Tata Nolbert, and uh, and my my Nana Armida, the the two of them were really powerhouses when it came to community support. So, my Tata was uh, in the mine, and he lost his pinky uh, due to a mining accident, and so um, he was able to leave the mine, and he became the the milkman. And so back in those days, the milkman was doing the what you would expect uh, at those times, right? He was going door to door, replacing the dairy products and going into people's houses to do that. So the amount of trust and integrity that was there is, is pretty obvious. And then there would be um, people fall on hard times, especially when the mine closed. It used to employ 80% of the working male population. And when the mine shut down, people, or when they were going on strike, even before that, people just, their, their funds dried up. And so my Tata would um, would just give people the food that they needed to be able to feed their family, whether they could or couldn't afford to pay them. So 
things like that. And then projects like there was one that um, was called Project Happy Face. That's where I got initiated into being a community helper was especially during those special times like Thanksgiving, like in Christmas time when people are thinking about um, getting together with their family when they don't have food. That's a whole different kind of way of being together. So our community would get together, fill up a bunch of bags of food and deliver them to family members. And that actually spun out into becoming what's now the Superior Food Bank. But it was started by a bunch of uh, caring women who all decided they were going to do this, my Nana being one of them. And she wrote my my Tata and myself into that and did that with all her kids. My father was the president of the Chamber of Commerce. He's been the Parks and Recs director. He's in a bunch of different roles like that, as, as well as, as my mother as well. She's uh, been on the board for our uh, local botanical garden, also with the Chamber of Commerce. So there's just a lot of that going on. But when you say career choice, it's 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 really funny because... I'm really working on for the people that live here, uh, helping your neighborhood being a, a viable career path. Right now, it's not. I mean, I was just looking at um, a friend of ours, um, Anna, who is in the collaborative, posted on Facebook saying, hey, I'm thinking about doing a GoFundMe because um, he just explained all the the financial challenges he's having. And here's someone who's dedicated to helping his neighborhood be a better place. And so a lot of us, you know, I put myself in this camp, like, you know, we're, we're living paycheck to paycheck. And it's a, and, and if you don't have a paycheck, well, what does that mean? You know, so that's a, a challenge that we're hoping to come across. Like right now, I don't, or that we're hoping to get across right now, I don't get paid for the work that I'm doing. And like the savings account runs dry. And I think, think about my family and um, what I'm doing to support them. And it's like long-term, you can see why it is that I'm doing what I'm doing. In the short term, it's like, well, we got bills to pay, and so that's mm -hmm. a, an, an an ongoing project at the moment. And we're there's some light at the end of the tunnel. We have a number of our uh, contributors in the nonprofit getting paid now, and so we're we're on our way. But yeah, career choice. I'd like to see that it is it is a career choice, but I'd like to see that it's an easier one for people to make with less sacrifice and less risk in the future. Oh man, this is a conversation that comes up for us all the time. Anna and myself had this conversation with you. Big part of why we're trying to lift up the stories of people like you, Chris, these people we call landscape leaders that uh, are doing things for their community that are really hard to put a, a dollar value on because it's so much like your, was it your grandfather who was the milkman who was going around meeting everybody and in a very authentic and grassroots way, you could say, becoming somebody that can connect the community. There's such value in, in being a person that serves in those in-between spaces. So yeah, let's, let's bring um, these stories. Let's lift them up, make them more visible. Well, and a point on the, on the value there, I mean, I agree with you and the current paradigm that we're in at the moment is a, it, we all know that like monoculture is bad, you know, you do a mon monocrop in su some area, depletes the soil, it's bad for biodiversity, you get less yields over time. It's just not a good idea to uh, have a, a monocrop and mono anything is might, might not be a good thing. But certainly we're in a mono capital type of a paradigm right now with our economic system. 
And as a result, that means that if you don't produce money on money returns, financial capital in, more financial capital out, then the other aspects are really not valued. So that means if we're building social capital, if we're developing human capital, we, we may not have an economic system that sees that as valuable in of itself because it's a different form of capital. And so I do think that part of the future is starting to understand, recognize, and value the, the various forms of capital that um, that we do need to be developing over time. Yeah, and I think that the the social capital that you're developing in your work with um, Leo's Community Center, I think is a, a really good example of how you're diversifying that capital. Um, so I, we'd love to talk a little bit more about Leo's Community Center and its, its impact on Superior. Uh, from what I've heard, it's clear that Leo's has become really embedded in the culture there. So can you share with us the origin story of Leo's and why your community has embraced it so much? So Leo's has been part of the community since the early 1930s. My grandfather, one of his first jobs was standing outside of Leo's, and it wasn't called Leo's at the time, but standing outside of Leo's and this uh, Lebanese guy, Romley, picking him up and they drive off to Phoenix, which used to be the fields and that used to be where all the growing happened. So drive to Phoenix and they get a bunch of food, bunch bunch of vegetables, and they drive back to civilization and Superior and some of these other smaller towns. And that was one of his first jobs. And the the main stop there, of course, was Leo's because that's where a lot of the uh, vegetables were stored and sold. And the the building changed hands over time. Number of Lebanese business owners owned it and always had it as a grocery store. At one point, it was uh, for about a year. It was a cooperativa or a cooperative, and uh, it's a very very interesting and innovative approach. It just for whatever reason, it didn't go. So after a year. Raimundo uh, bought it and it turned it into Leo's grocery store. And it's been with the community for such a long time. As I mentioned, how my tata would do the, like, just give people food as they needed it without ex expectation of payment. That's not something that's necessarily unique to him. It was just part of how we all work together, supporting each other. And you could see that in the way that Raimundo would do business, which is he would have all these bills, this big old stack of bills on the shelf. And if I walked in there uh, when I was a little kid walking from my house over to Leo's, he'd look over at me and he'd hand me a candy bar and he'd say, put it on Tata's bill? He'd say, yeah, let's put it on Tata's bill. And then he'd just go find my Tata's name. He'd write down one candy bar, however much it was, put it back on there. And I'd just walk out the door. And that's how people interacted with, with Leo's. It's like there was this implicit amount of trust amongst us all because otherwise you just wouldn't do that you wouldn't say here's here's your groceries pay me when you get paid you know it, otherwise like a system like that really wouldn't work but building off of that uh the way that it provided um sustenance nourishment to the community but also this level of trust and connectivity that's like just part of the heart of what's in the building and what it means for people who, who've been here for some time. So when Raimundo died, his son spent some time trying to keep the business open. He ended up shutting it down and you know, the building went up for sale. And it was right around that time that I was working on coming back to Superior. I had left and built my career and did that whole thing and was 
coming back to Superior and with this um, property for sale, it just made so much sense. This is going to be the community center at the time. It was like, this is going to be the bioregional training center. You know, that was the, the idea. I mean, the, the, that went in a lot of different directions in the beginning. And we ended up in October having our first big meeting there. We invited a bunch of community members. We're like, hey, we're here. Let's do it. Let's all get together in this building. And we had uh, people from, um, well, if you're familiar with the Repair Cafe concept, the creator of the Repair Cafe and other circular economy folks from Europe, they came to uh, to Leo's, gave this awesome presentation. And we're like, oh, this is great. This is like exactly what we're thinking. And then COVID hits and that just changed everything because that was October of 2019, right? So um, leading up to that, we just did a bunch of renovation work and um, had to get our hands dirty to get the building in a, a, a functional enough state to actually invite people into. And yeah, then we had to do a big pivot once COVID hit. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, I've, I've sensed that you uh, and the community in Superior and those who are Hearing process, community processes in Leo's have uh, really advocated for responding to need um, and not coming up with plans ahead of time. But before I before we get into that, potentially, I I, I did want to take a step back and look at um, the processes of bringing together community on the whole. And there's so many modalities and techniques and ways of thinking about this. I know you've taken the Regenerasis Practitioner Training Program. And you are an enthusiastic advocate. You've taught me a lot about it. Uh, you've sort of begun to pull me into that world as well. And I'm grateful for it. Uh, you even brought out Joel Glansberg to Superior to uh, facilitate a process called Story of Place, a discovery process, if you will. We talked before this interview started, before we hit record, about how this could be an entire podcast episode in and of itself talking about Regenesis. But I'm wondering if there's just a little bit of a perspective, an introductory perspective you can share with us uh, on how story of place unlocks a higher order perspective, higher order thinking for a community and creates the opportunity for people to step beyond problems, the problems mm. that they, they might feel stuck in. Mm. So, so many ways to take this. I'll try this avenue now, which is the distinction between an adornment and an embellishment. You think about an embellishment, it's like you're slapping something on something that um, isn't really in, in alignment with its nature. You know, like I, I th think this this phrase has gone out of fashion, but lipstick on a pig, you know, probably not the best phrase in the world, but it kind of gets the point across in an easy way, which is like, well, you know, there there's nothing that you're, you're not adorning this this uh living creature by putting this lipstick on it's not bringing out any anything that's already inherent in uh in this uh living being uh, but an adornment that's what it does it's like it's seeing what is at the essence of of this living being let's say and it could it doesn't necessarily have to be a living being but you're, what's at the essence of this and then let's see how we can bring it out more that's what it what a adornment is doing and if, for those who are listening with, with with my hands i'm kind of making this gesture of like something small and like this this expansion and that's really like what an adornment does it's it's in alignment with the essence of of what you're trying to to lift up more and so 
I use that uh, distinction to talk about doing community work because we can do community work as an embellishment or we can do community work as an adornment. And if it's an embellishment, it's, I got these great ideas and I'm going to slap them onto this place or, oh, I've got, got something that is ready to scale. Now we just need to scale it everywhere. So let's scale it over here and let's scale it over there. Um, I got these best practices that we've learned from this place or that place. Let's apply these best. All of that is more on the embellishment side of the equation. Whereas at a point of what some people call epistemic humility, which is like saying like, I only have certain ways that I can know something and I'm being humble about the fact that there's all kinds of ways to know something. And, you know, and that humility goes further and saying, yeah, my family's been in Superior for a hundred years, but like, there's so much to know. Like, I don't just automatically know everything about the place and neither does the the combined efforts of all of us who are participants in, in what the work that we're doing. Like, that's still not enough <laughs> crowdsourced knowledge to know everything about your place. And you just really, it's unlimited, all the things that you could know about any place. So it's not so much to know everything and then do some work. It's it's more like try to find the, the through line, try to find the patterns that exist um, throughout all the various contexts that uh, you might look at when we consider this place. So in Superior, we kind of have an idea that there's always a question, how big is here? And you can Thankfully, with Superior, you can see it with the way that the mountains kind of frame in and create this like bowl or enclave of, of this whole place that you can even feel it when you're driving to or away from Superior. It's almost like there's a morphogenetic field over the place that you like enter into and, and exit out of and like your nervous system um, can can almost track the difference. So when you have that, you kind of have this hole in mind that you can see in your mind's eye or you know, actually just going outside and looking. Now we, we have an idea of like, this is, this is here. This is our place. And then we ask like, well, how does here work? Is another Regenesis question. How does here work? And we can ask this in all kinds of different ways. There's a number of um, ways in which we've gone through this uncovery and discovery process of, of what our place is all about. Who is our place? Almost like a, this is also not a perfect analogy here, but I have my, my son, Francisco. And like, if I was like, hey, Francisco, you're going to be a doctor. And I'm going to make you a doctor. And I'm going to do all the stuff that um, that you can do in order to be a doctor. Um, and that's what you're going to be. Not the right approach, right? The, the approach is like, well, who are you, Francisco? Like, what are your gifts? What's, what's your essence? What's at your core? That's what we want to um, bring out more. And that's really what the approach is that uh, Regenesis takes in this story of place process is that it's about um, starting off with understanding what this place is all about, who this place is, and and then working from there. That way, we're not just pulling ideas from other places and, and then just slapping them onto the place. And unfortunately, there's a lot of people in what Carol Sanford uh, calls this do-good paradigm. Where it's like, oh, we really want to do good. We really want to do good for this place. But uh, a lot of times that could actually be recapitulating uh, old old processes and paradigms that got us into this mess to begin with. And so, you know, this, this I, I mean, you think about like how colonization works. It's like, we're going to take this social system and we're going to take these, these ways of working and ways of being, and we're just going to apply it everywhere. And it's not that hard to see if you think you have a good idea. I'm just going to apply it everywhere. You're almost doing the same thing. So this is a whole different approach. 
so I, I think that the fact that you reference so many different, um, mental models in a, in addition to everything that you've learned from the Regenesis practitioner training program is what makes your approach so interesting to community organizing. You clearly put a lot of thought and time and research into um, how you develop your, your programs moving forward and how you identify community needs. Um, I'm wondering if you could speak to um, how you've used things like pro-social, systems thinking, and other mental models when you have been collaborating within, um, within Leo's Community Center as well as with other community organizations throughout the Copper Corridor in Arizona? Sure. Well, there's a few concepts that I'll introduce here. One and a lot, lot of these concepts I get from like a few thinkers and doers who I really respect. Like one is Dave Snowden, and he introduces this concept to me called bounded applicability. And it's, it's an important one because the things that I'm going to share here, they, they might have bounded applicability. Like maybe they work in my context, but not in another context. And um, and there's sometimes there's limits to things where they they apply, and then there's places where they just don't. So. I'll just keep keep that in the, the forefront of our minds here with some of the things that I'll share. One is that these mental models, uh, it, we are coming at it from this, this idea of theory-informed practice. So we're on the ground, we're doing work, and we are using theory to support the work that we're doing. So it's not totally random, but it's not totally like controlled um, either. And so this theory-informed practice is, is an important one that we're using. And what I found in, in the field, as it were, is like my original uh, compulsion was like, oh, let me tell everyone about these mental models that when we're all working from the same place, we all know what we're doing, and we all are share in the same understanding of these frameworks and mental models that we can use together. Well, not everyone wants to hear about your framework. And again, when I, and I'm saying all this, I'm I'm saying this has just been my experience, and I'm not saying that's how it is for everybody. This is just what what I've seen in in my own work is that not everyone wants to hear about your framework, not everyone wants to hear about um, this mental model that you have, and knowing where the appropriate time is to bring it up and to to share these things, and when the appropriate time is to just do it, just get into it, and then as naturally people have questions or someone says, hey, well, what like is this part of some larger process? Like, oh, I'm so glad you asked. I got a million things I can tell you now, but until then, until it's necessary, it may not be appropriate to uh, to get into all those mental models. Now, of course, with uh, who we're speaking with uh, now is, um, I'm guessing is uh, other landscape leaders and people who are landscape leader curious maybe. So we can talk more about those mental models because it's it's more appropriate here. But that's a long disclaimer. But it's it's uh it's from like uh some hard won lessons that some of my mentors have told me like don't don't talk about it, just do it. And, and I'm like, well, no, I really want to because like I love this stuff. And won't everybody? Not always the case. So there's the big mental model disclaimer. And you probably aren't going to listen to me and you're going to do it anyway. And maybe you'll find the same thing out or maybe you'll learn something else that um, that I'm wrong in your context. And that's kind of the idea. 
is uh, all this stuff is contextually dependent. So we've talked about, um, like I, I gestured towards this multi-capital framework as one of the things that we use and we can track all the different capital flows and the capital development of any project. Ideally, any project that you're doing is working on all forms of capital simultaneously. And it's easy to, to look at in a visual example of how we, we take like our community garden and then we can show how we're developing all the forms of capital, even financial capital, even political capital, so on and so forth. So that's just like a general idea to consider. If you want to look into one way of looking at a multi-capital framework, there's many, but the one that uh, gets a lot of traction, um, especially like in academic circles that I found is a CCF framework or community capitals framework. And so that's worth taking a look. But if we were to zoom out um, about these frameworks in general, like why do they matter? This also comes from Regenesis is that how we think shapes and affects what we think about. And then what we think about affects what we do. And then what we do has some kind of effects in the world. So the powers upstream, you can get so much leverage from shifting the way that we think, because that's going to have all these downstream effects. Yeah, well, it's it's so interesting that you bring in the the idea of um, of not forcing mental models on people uh, because the, the there's so much nuance there. The question I want to ask next is about bioregional learning, and I remember you telling me the story of you referenced it even in this interview of uh, of that being a big focus when you all first established the community processes when when Leo's was first purchased. It was going to be a bioregional learning center, but that wasn't the need that you felt in the community. That wasn't that didn't make sense to people given the onset of the COVID pandemic. There were all these other things going on. Um, all the while, you sort of held that concept in your back pocket um, as community capacity formed, as you started to do things like making soupy soil, which is part of your community gardening program, um, a way to create value and get people participating. But I've I've sensed that you're you're sort of testing the field in bringing back the bioregional learning learning concept. Curious, what role you see that playing now, and and where that might go moving forward. One of the approaches that we've taken is to set up and sustain, maintain, and evolve ongoing pursuits. So we have ongoing efforts that we're doing. So like an example that's really tangible is. First Wednesday of the month is open mic night. And in our town, to say you're going to do something and then to do it and then do it consistently and then like months, half a year, a year later, you're still doing that thing. That's like a differentiator here. You know, we're a small rural town, 3,000 people. Um, we do work a lot like almost like we're operating off of island time, if you know what I mean. So consistency is in of itself a major differentiator, at least here. So when we're doing things, especially when we're trying to have them come out in a natural and emergent way, we have to balance this uh, nurturing of the real potential that's there with things like being in integrity and being impeccable with our word. So how do you do that? How do you say like, well, we're doing this thing and we don't really know what it's going to turn into. And then to also say when, when someone asks you, so when's the next movie night going to be like, oh, I don't know. And so there's this balance of like how, how we nurture something to get it to a point to where we can say, yeah, uh, first Wednesday 
of the month is open mic night. And I can say that and be in integrity knowing that we've done everything that we've needed to do to reinforce this process for it to continue. So it's almost as if what we've done is set up these, these ongoing processes that are on a recurring basis that are that have enough strength to them that matter enough to our community to for people to actually show up to that now that we have these ongoing processes, we can start to pull in some of the bioregional learning uh, into the mix. Like uh, we have a partnership with the University of Arizona's environmental department. And so we have once a month, we have the uh, professor and some of her team come to Leo's and they lead you through a science activity. Like on Friday, it was um, getting some of your local water from wherever, whatever source you want, and then doing an arsenic test on it. And then let's learn how to, to conduct the experiment. And that's what we did. It's like, is that bioregional learning? Is it not? Like, it, it, And so I think that the idea here is that there's there's all these relationships that we're building and it's the relationships are what's important. So if we have relationships with people who have a lot to say in the community and they show up to Leo's, well, when we want to get into talking about uh, stories of our place and talking about the history, well, the people who have a lot to say, they're already showing up. So you just, you know, ask them to come up and tell them that like, Hey, will you share some stories about what happened in Superior when you were a kid as an example, or when we have U of A uh, and their team coming now that now that we have this ongoing process once a month they're here now we can start to say okay well here's the, the more of the bioregional learning strategy that we think we have in mind like what can we start to do that starts to just move things in that direction in a way we're what's in the foreground is leo's community development center what's in the background is bioregional learning center and we can just tack on those bioregional activities with the ongoing processes that we're already developing that are all grounded in things that the people here care about and will show up to and are interested in. I love it. And I'd just like to add that uh, you, you can break the frame as well of what a bioregional learning center is. And uh, we have landscape leaders, Brian and Susan in particular, who say that the best way to communicate bioregional learning to the most people is, is us just learning to be people of place. And in many ways, you establishing, you and your your team at Leo's establishing these ongoing processes of open mic, of people coming out, that that in, in many ways is people learning to be people of the place. So I think we could break that frame even and say, like, this is all bioregional learning. Yeah, I think so. And I've also been playing with this, this notion of, uh, of centering bioregional learning. It's like we've got mm. we've got a place that we go, and then there's sometimes that we center bioregional learning and that's like when when tom comes and talks about the pre-contact history of the place and and what people were doing in the pre-classic era or something um, it, as just an example of how there's times that we can center bioregional learning as we're going about this work too i think that what you were saying about building those relationships with people who are knowledgeable about their place um, it makes me think about the larger collaboration that you have started uh, throughout the larger Copper Corridor region, you're really bringing in a lot of people who love their place outside of Superior, but still within that same, that same general area. And you are, uh, you're, you're really kind of the center of this, this new collaboration between different communities like Miami and Globe um, and bringing them together. And you're also uh, 
you're collaborating with other very knowledgeable people about, um, including Carrie Turner and Mark Pearson, um, around implementing um, community co-created causal loop diagrams to help people understand their place and their place's needs a bit better. Uh, so I'm wondering if you could just speak to a little bit about how we're planning on moving forward with building systems thinking capacities and capabilities with these groups. And I say we, because I'm very excited to be part of this project. Yeah. And it's really made a difference, Anna, to have you in support of the work that we're doing as, as currently as a facilitator and then soon to be in, in more strategic ways that you'll be helping us. So yeah, that's, that's really appreciated. On the collaborative, it's Superior, at, at the moment of, that we're talking about this, it's Superior, it's Miami, it's Globe, and it's Kearney. And these are the, we're all connected through this identity of what we call the Copper Corridor, which actually in a whole is about 12 towns, all with a similar background, all mining towns or ex-mining towns. We're situated along the Queen Creek. Most are situated along the Gila River and we share in this identity together of being people of a, of a similar place. And so we already have reasons to, to care for what's happening in the other towns, right? Someone in the Copper Corridor has referred to all of our communities as a string of pearls. And I love that image of just, you just see these like these nodes of light in these various towns. Well, there's a lot of challenges that we face, you know, like Superior, we're doing better than a lot of the other towns economically. And even still with all that in mind of us doing better, we're still one and a half times the poverty rate of the, the state average. We're still half the median income for um, per household for the state average. And the state is, I'm not sure how, what it's standing is uh, nationwide, but I don't think it's super great. So you just imagine that the needs are, are really high. In, in these communities that we're talking about here. So having that epistemic humility again is part of the picture. So I could say, well, we have the story of place process that we do, and here's a way that we can learn about our place. Well, that's true. Uh, also like just talking to people, right? You learn a lot from just having conversations. True. Well, and when we say epist like epistemology, that's like ways of knowing. That's all that means. So there's different ways in which we can know a thing. Way, different ways we can come to understand something. And um, another way to come to understand something is to do a causal loop diagram. This is where you think about the, the system that you have in mind and you consider what are all the variables that have some effect on changing how this, this thing is. And you start listing out these variables and then you start to see how the variables relate to another. Where are their increases? Where are their decreases? So uh, household income, if that increases, then local spending increases, right? And this is as an example of how these things relate to each other. Part of why we wanna do this is because we start to find when we're doing the systems mapping, we start to find where are there some reinforcing loops? Where can we find some exponential gains? Because if you increase this, that naturally increases these other things, which goes back to increasing the first thing you're trying to increase. And it has this, this uh, virtuous cycle. And we look for those and it's you don't always find those having conversations with people on the streets necessarily. You can, but there's just different ways of trying to approach something. So this causal loop diagram building is a really powerful way and it's uh, proven enough that uh, all the these giant organizations uh, use it. Like you mentioned Mark Pearson and Carrie Turner, who they're all about relocalizing our neighborhoods. And, uh, and part of it is like bringing 
to bear some of the tools and learnings and 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 processes from these large corporations and seeing how they can be applied in our normal everyday context. And again, we're always having this whole best practice, no, but methods, patterns, processes, these are all things that we can just try and experiment with. Maybe a causal loop diagram isn't going to be contextually appropriate for a, another group. Well, for our group, we're open-minded enough and interested that we can, and we've done it in Superior, so there's already kind of like a reference experience to uh, how it could be used for a larger group. So those are just some things to keep in mind. Yeah, so informative. And and now I'm thinking going from models and concepts and processes to focusing for just a moment on landscape leaders themselves, the skill sets that, that we have. I've heard you talk about uh, capacity building in the past. If, you know, if you're envisioning speaking to a group of landscape leaders right now, I, I'm wondering if there's any skill or a couple skills you could you could highlight, you'd, you'd want to lift up, you'd want to encourage people to develop in order to increase their capacity as landscape leaders to unlock greater p- potential mm. for themselves, for their communities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'll, I'll, uh, I've, seems like I have like a disclaimer or like a preface, to everything I'm saying here. So here's the other one is um, a, back to Carol Sanford, another one of these elders in uh, working regeneratively. And she makes this distinction between capacity and capability. And so you might even just intuitively have a sense of like capacity being like, how much can I hold in a thing or how much, how much can I, can I bear? And then capability is like, well, what can I do? And so both are important. Both are needed. When we talk about skills, I think more along the lines of capabilities then, and a capability that I'm going to point, point out here, I'm going to go out on a limb. There's so many, but one that I'll, go on a limb with is a regenerative capability known as imaging. And this isn't imagining, this is imaging. So picture the sprouting of, of a flower from seed to full bloom. And that's like, if you picture that in your mind, the process of it, of, of it going through, and the more vivid you can see it, you're seeing this developmental process. Part of the, the work of working regeneratively and for your landscape leader is seeing things always on an unfolding way. Everything's on, nothing's fixed and static. If you talk about a problem, it's stuck and frozen in the way that you're framing it. Everything is constantly changing and unfolding. Um, therefore, to, to develop the kind of way of seeing through something that you're experiencing. So I'm looking at like what's happening at Leo's and I start to image through um, that, and it's a kind of unfoldment of like, okay, here's where we're at and here's where I feel like we're going. And then what do I start to see as I do that? It's a way to start to, to get an eye on potential. And it, I don't know how to talk about it as being different from just imagining or making something up because it, you actually feel it. Um, it's like a, um, it's almost like a, a discursive process. If you're familiar with that term where you're just sort of seeing this and then, and then, and then, and then in your mind. And that's been so helpful for me to see a situation and kind of like, well, where, where, where might this go? Well, when I do this imaging process, it doesn't mean that's where it's going to go for sure. But I can see almost like a uh, quasi-logical way of where we could go based on what I'm seeing. And it's just a, it's a kind of skill that we all have. Um, it just takes a, a level of being comfortable with yourself to, to try it. And it does take some practice. 
Oh, yeah, I love that. That's kind of like a, you know, future visioning. So you can start to really identify what are the next steps that I need to take to get to that, that uh, future that I want to see. I think mm, starting great. from now, right? And that's what's different. You start mm. from now and then you go there versus like kind of jumping to the future and working your way back, which is what you hear a lot of people talk about. You're you're seeing that the future that you imagine is like a result of this like imaged causal unfoldment. Okay. I think that as we're talking about landscape leaders and how we are collaborating with them. Um, you you are collaborating with so many people. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, the collaboration that you've been having with other landscape leaders within the Colorado River Basin and the planetary network of bioregions associated with the Design School for Regenerating the Earth. Um, how has that impacted your work in Superior? Mm -hmm. Without a doubt, it's really increase the energy and the morale of people here because like I mentioned being a 3,000 person town it's like oh we're just little superior what's going on here but when we find out someone from Canada came to superior they they didn't come to Phoenix and say oh, I'll stop and no they came to superior and that's for us it's mind-blowing so when Elliot came it was it's worth noting that he started off just being helpful on in, on on the design school, just passing information back and forth. We're trying to to get like a topo map of a particular area where there's some agroforestry project happening, and he was so helpful that turned into a Zoom meeting. That Zoom meeting turned into another Zoom meeting, and that turned into I'm gonna uh, buy a ticket and I'll come down for the prickly pear festival. So him coming, it's in. Of course, we've had um, even more than just Elliot come to visit us, but the 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 effects have generally been the same, which is this sort of uh, feeling that we matter. <laughs> you know, morale is it's hard to put a can't really put a dollar value on morale. And then the the tangible ways of of how to um, go about doing something like now. So we're at the garden, and Elliot's looking around. He's like. Hey, let's let's make a tree nursery, and it's like, well, do we need it? it was like, no, let's just do it right now. You got a shovel, and then we just did it. And so, yeah, there, there's and and also in the ways in which he's sharing the a different perspective of how he's relating with the land and with the place, and, it, and it, there are and and practices that he shared with us too that do get uh, transmitted. And so we had uh, Francisco and Benedo drop down on their way back to Mexicali and. We got to show them what we were up to. And, you know, a lot of these, we we have this, this aphorism, culture and connection before vision and strategy, right? So, you know, what's to come out of some of these connections, we, we don't really know, but we know that fostering the connection, connecting as caring humans as the ground for which we're going to do anything becomes the right way in, our, in, in, in the view that the battle-tested view is like, it's way better to do that than to, to skip over it. So... Yeah, some some of this is still emerging, but um, at the very least, the the morale and some uh, novel connections that come up. I mean, I'll even say that like um, like Elliot has uh, done a mentoring call with one of uh, the youth in our tech club, and like that's starting to turn into who knows what, right? So uh, it's hard to hard to define where these go, but it's another aphorism is it's about the relationship, stupid. It really is about the relationships. I mean, it's just, it all comes down <laughs> to that. Mm-hmm. 
somewhat ironically, you talked when you talked about the the capability that you would share with landscape leaders. You you talked about uh, imaging and building out from the present moment into the future. Well, I, I want to actually flip it on you and say, what is what is superior in twenty years? What do you what do you sense is the possibility for it as friends as baby Francisco, your very young boy, as he's giving you your first gray hairs? What does superior mm. look like, and and maybe what is Francisco's role in it potentially? Mm. Well, there's the the felt sense of the place, and then there's like the the functions of the place, and those are a bit different. And I could speak to both, and on the the felt sense or the beingness of the place, I can really feel more of that that festive that uh, party in the air kind of atmosphere that is grounded in getting things done in a fun way that are beneficial for us all. There's, there's, it's like fun with a purpose. And I can, I can feel that really strongly. There's so many characters in Superior. I mean, people say, man, everyone, everyone's a character. I'm a character. We're all characters. And I think just more more characters for sure. And on the functional side, it's like I can see a lot of young people growing up with a, a direct experiences of how to be helpful. And that through those direct experiences of how to be helpful, that uh, the young people that come from not just Superior, but for our region can become some of the leaders in this new world that we're going to find ourselves in. And I think they'll be bringing their gifts in all kinds of different ways, but through it all, whatever that looks like, whatever um, mode of expression that's going to be, I I do see that uh, at its core, it'll be about being a caring human and about being helpful. And I think we're going to be preparing our, uh, our future generations for the world that they're going to face so they can be helpful in the way that only they can. Mm, yeah, thank you. That's an inspiring answer and and also a fun answer. <laughs> exactly. Well, and I think just to speak to that, the work that you do with young people at Leo's Community Center is so critical to um, supporting them, supporting their dreams, and also your your attempts to to keep people in Superior. You want to give people a life that they can, that they want to stay in Superior and. Um, raise a family there themselves. So I think that that's a that's a really great vision for mm-hmm. Superior. Mm. Yeah, and uh, that's something that is less unique is like affordable housing, and you know, and housing that is affordable, and um, opportunities to be a business owner in a cooperativa or a cooperative. Now these are uh, and and relocalizing our economy, where we can look at all the different services that we're passing out to. Um, people afar and we can relocalize those and, and have those as um, services that are owned by and and services that are delivered locally. So there's all those things too. But I think you feel you can feel it in the air that there's this this notion that our young people are going to be um, the, the the future leaders that we need. And I'll say if anyone wants to uh, learn how to run a good meeting, then you should uh, listen to the way that Lakin runs our, our Leo's circle meetings, because it's like, wow, <laughs> incredible. Oh, that's great. 
Well, we really enjoyed hearing about all of the amazing work that you're doing, Chris. So how can listeners support what you're doing and also support a place like Leo's Community Center? Yeah, thank you. I mean, the standard go to regeneratingsonora.org. And if you feel so compelled to donate, we uh, every dollar in a rural setting goes such a long way. And it's like... Uh, one of our town elders, Beto Cervantes, says, Sin dinero no baila el chango. Without money, the monkey don't dance. And um, there's plenty of, of places that your dollars will, will go to that are going to support the, the mission that we have here. So that's one. And then I'd also recommend uh, looking at our YouTube channel. If you just type in Regenerating Sonora, then you can see the most updated things that are happening and you'll get more of a felt sense of what we're up to here and how we're going about doing it. And uh, maybe in the future, there might be some uh, offerings uh, that I could put into the design school to uh, share some more of this information because we really did just scratch the surface here. And you can probably tell uh, both you as interviewers and those who are listening is I'm like, like trying to contain myself from like going on a 40 minute rant on any one of these topics. So I think there's, there's more to share and the design school could be a place for that. Oh, yeah. I think that um, giving Leo's like its own uh, interview is probably very necessary. And I do got to <laughs> say, That'd be cool. yeah, your social media is you guys have so many live streaming um, mm-hmm. oppor- opportunities of your events. I think it's, it's great. Thanks so much for your time, Chris. We really appreciate you. Uh, we hope that you have a good rest of your day. Nice. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity to share what we're up to here. Thanks for caring. Thanks for being caring humans. And uh, pleasure to work with both of you in all the different ways that we do. So thank you. Likewise, Chris, you're the man. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you're feeling a jolt of inspiration. If you'd like to support Anna and me in our ongoing efforts to tell these stories, you can donate to us on our Patreon at Awakening Lands. Links for all of this can be found in the show notes. Thanks, and please tell your landscape we said hello.